Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to an episode of the Selling Greenville podcast. I'm your host, Stan McCune, realtor here in Greenville, South Carolina. And as always, you can find all my contact information in the show notes. Should you need a realtor, should you know somebody that needs a realtor, or if you just want to shoot the breeze, feel free to reach out to me. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to it. Feel free to rate or review it if you haven't already done that. If you're planning to hop on a plane or go somewhere and you just have to hear the content of this podcast, then go ahead and download it. Whatever you need to do to get this very important information that you all are dying to listen to, I urge you to do it. I'm not going to be doing tons of advertising this podcast all the time on my social media because I use my social media for personal stuff as well. And I don't like to just inundate people with real estate stuff on there. So please subscribe so you do not miss this amazing content that I am trying to deliver for you guys every week. Today we're going to have a little discussion about real estate investing. And you either saw the title of this podcast and immediately knew what it was, or you looked at it and you were like, man, I have no clue what he is talking about. But we are going to be talking about the Burr method, the B-R-R-R-R method of real estate investing. Now, what does the B-R-R-R-R, we'll just call it the Burr method, what does the Burr method uh, mean and what does that look like practically? If I'm just going to go ahead and explain it just in the off chance that you are not familiar with it. Or maybe you've heard of it, but you just can't really remember. Here's what it means. All right. The, it's an acronym. And very simply, it means buy, rehab, or renovate. We'll just say rehab. Buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat. Buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat. Here is basically what this method of real estate investing entails. For one thing, it's for people looking to purchase a lot of rentals, right? For people looking to build out a rental portfolio. This isn't really a strategy for house flippers. This isn't really a strategy for someone that just wants a single, you know, like Airbnb or something like that. This is for people that are trying to build out a rental portfolio. Here's basically how it works. You have to start by purchasing a property that you have equity in. So let's say that you buy a property uh, really cheaply and, but it needs some work. There's a reason why you bought it cheap. It has some problems and you have to address those problems. So let's say after you address those problems, let's say you buy it for $100,000, you put $30,000 into it. Now you're out $130,000. But that property, that house, duplex, whatever it may be, is now worth $200,000. Maybe you even get some tenants in there uh, as part of the, the rent part of it. So you get some tenants in there, they're paying 2000 a month. So those are pretty good numbers. You, you bought it and rehabbed it and whatnot for 130. Now you're renting it for, you know, 2000 or, or whatever it may be in this scenario. And it's worth 200,000 factoring in the, uh, the property itself, factoring in the rents and all of that worth 200,000. Now you can go to a bank and ask them to do a cash out refinance. And you can do this on your primary residence as well. Um, Again, 
Some people will do like a home equity line of credit. That can be a better option as well in some instances. But you can go to the bank and ask for a cash out refinance. Here's how that works. Typically, the bank is going to look at the property, get an appraisal to see what the value of the property is, and then they will loan you up to 80% of the value of the property. Some banks, it's more or less. Some banks might be willing to do 85%. Typically, they're not going to do more than that um, if it's a rental property. Some banks might not be comfortable doing more than 70 or 75% of loan to value. But let's just assume for the purposes of this podcast, it's an average bank. They're willing to loan you 80% loan to value. So now they're giving you a loan with that property as collateral for 80% of 200,000. That comes out to 160,000. Now remember, you put into this property 130 and you're renting it now for $2,000 a month. So the property is going to pay for your mortgage which at $160,000, it'll be well less than $2,000 a month. And you've got now $30,000 more than you had prior to purchasing the property. And you're like, Stan, that sounds way too good to be true. No, it's not. Trust me. It is not too good to be true. This is a strategy that a lot of people use with one caveat. And that's that at some point, banks will start being concerned about how much debt you have. And you could run into a situation where if you have a year with bad tax returns, um, where your income doesn't doesn't look very good, then you might run into a situation where banks are like, hey, your DTI, which stands for debt to income, is just too high. Typically, what the banks are looking at is, all right, how much debt are you having to pay per month? Let's say that it's 5000 dollars a month. Just kind of throwing that out there. How much is your income? Your income is, let's say, $10,000 a month. Um, In that case, your DTI would be 50%. 5,000 is 50% of 10,000. Well, banks are not going to be happy about that. Once you start getting above the mid-30s, banks really start to get a little bit nervous about lending to you. Now, if you have a good track record, and you know you have some other rental properties and you have good credit and you've, you've not made a late payment uh, or had any issues like that, then a bank might be willing to lend to you if your DTI is in the low 40s. Um, and there are some financial institutions out there that will uh, kind of ignore your DTI, um, but they require a higher down payment and a higher interest rate. There's only a few of those out there and that might not be appealing because, again, you're having to put more down. You're having to, um, to have that higher interest rate and whatnot. But there are a few creative ways uh, to, to finance properties, even if your debt to income is a little bit higher than what the traditional bank would be comfortable with. But that's basically the rough strategy of, uh, of the Burr strategy. And then you repeat all right, so now you have $160,000 in, in the bank. Um, you've got a rental property in your portfolio. Now you can take that $160,000 and buy another property and go through the same process all over again. It's a really great strategy, a really effective strategy, um, and, and a good way to start building out 
a rental portfolio. Now, the entire premise of doing the Burr strategy for building out your rental portfolio is, is that it assumes that you get a property with substantial equity. If you don't get a property with equity, then you're going to have an awfully hard time refinancing it, and then you run into problems, right? If you get stuck with the property that you can't refinance, or let's say that um, you can refinance it, but you end up having to outlay more cash than what you refinance. Let's say that you uh, put $130,000 cash into the property or whatever, maybe not cash, that's a lot of money cash, um, but let's say that you put after you know whatever loan you might get and whatever money down and whatever rehab costs and whatnot, your total uh, outlay of, of money from banks and whatnot is 130,000. When you go to refinance, you can only refinance 100,000 of that. Well, that's bad. Now you're out 30,000. You don't want that to happen. So you have to buy a property that has substantial equity, right? That's the conventional line of thinking. And a lot of people talk about the 70% rule. Again, when you heard that, you either immediately, something immediately came to mind, or you're just like, man, I have no idea what the 70% rule is. So I'm going to go ahead and explain it just in case. The 70% rule is the idea that when you're buying rental properties, uh, well, really, it, it applies more to uh, house flips, but a lot of people will apply it to the Burr method as well that the idea is that you shouldn't spend more than 70% of the value of a property after repairs. So let's give an example of that. Let's just say that there is a home that has an ARV, after repair value. In other words, the value of the property after rehabbing it is $100,000. And you know that your rehab costs are about $20,000. The 70% rule says that you should buy that property for $50,000. Why? The after repair value of that property is $100,000. 70% of that is $70,000. And then you have to subtract the $20,000 of repairs. So you have to buy that property for $50,000. Now that is a great goal. Listen, if, if I could get properties using the 70% rule all the time, that would be awesome. But there's really only two ways that you can buy a property with that much equity. The one is if you buy a house or a property that is off market and being sold by a motivated seller. So there are a lot of people out there, you, you might even get this from time to time, uh, there are people sending out postcards to property owners that for some reason, they have some kind of algorithm that determines, okay, this is someone that is likely to be a motivated seller or someone that has enough equity in their house that they might be willing to sell it at a discount. And so there are these investors out there that are sending postcards out or doing cold calls or whatever it may be to try to accumulate uh, properties or, or to try to find leads on properties uh, from people that would be deemed motivated sellers, people that might be willing to sell their home at a discount. So that's one possibility. You might be able to somehow find a property that way, or maybe someone you know finds a property that way, and then uh, they are able to get it to you. Maybe they, they take a little bit of a cut 
uh, off the top, we typically call those real estate wholesalers that find a property uh, that's off market with a motivated seller, really cheap, and then they mark it up by a little bit and then they end up just selling it to someone else and they actually never even own the property throughout that process. Um, that's one way that you can do it. The only problem with that strategy is, um, well, for one thing, it's not very easy to just all of a sudden find off-market deals. That is not easy at all. It's very difficult. It's even difficult for those that are like doing that basically full-time. And then when someone does, let's say that you're, you're relying on a wholesaler or some type of other real estate investor to supply you with those types of properties, they typically have a buyer's list of a lot of other people looking at these properties as well. So even though it is off market and there's not as much competition as there would be in the MLS, there is still going to be tons of competition from other investors looking to acquire the property. So it's not an easy way to go about it. The other way that you can purchase a house or purchase a property using the 70% rule um, outside of it being an off-market deal with a motivated seller. And let's just be honest, you, you are not going to find properties on the market that, that are going to fit the 70% rule. I mean, very, very rare. It happens every now and then in the market that we have, but it's, it's very rare. So we're not even going to discuss that. The only exception, which is the second way that you can acquire properties using the 70% rule with that type of equity is if it's in a buyer's market. And we are not in a buyer's market. We have not been in a buyer's market for a really long time. But 10 years ago, when it was a buyer's market, you actually could find deals on the market uh, that basically followed the 70% rule. And really, you just had to wait for the property to be on the market for a long time and then essentially offer a low ball and then hope that the seller would be willing to accept it because the property isn't moving. Those are the two scenarios, either off-market deals or on-market deals in a buyer's market. If you have just on-market things that are on the market in a seller's market, it's basically impossible to be able to purchase those using the 70% rule. But I've got good news. There is another way to do this that allows you to get equity and that allows you to do a version of this Burr strategy in a seller's market. And that is what all this, all this introductory talk has all been to lead us to this point of, okay, so we're in a seller's market. It's very difficult to find properties that fit the Burr model. So now what? I'm going to introduce to you the idea that uh, I'm sure there's someone else that's come up with uh, terminology for this idea, but um, I, I have not seen it anywhere. So I stand uh, corrected if, if there is another way that people refer to this, but I'm going to refer to this as the low equity delayed refinance option. All right. Very nerdy uh, real estate lingo there, but the low equity delayed refinance method for doing the Burr strategy. All right, here's how this works. Um, you can essentially get equity in a property one of two ways, right? 
One is to buy the property with substantial equity right up front. And that's what we just talked about. That's what the 70% rule is trying to do. You're trying to get all that equity up front and then you don't have to worry about what happens after that. You've already got the equity. But there is another way. And that is to buy the property in an area where it will see substantial appreciation over the next few years and where even if you don't have a ton of equity up front, after a few years, you will have quite a bit of equity. Now, that option is an option that is much more likely to work in this type of a market. And we have already talked about in previous podcasts, uh, and you can go back and, and, and listen. I can't remember what episode it is, but there was a podcast I did a few weeks ago where I talked about market appreciation, where we tracked median price points and looked at what are areas of Greenville that are seeing the, the highest rates of growth in that median price point. And, and based on that data, we can roughly project what markets are appreciating the most. And so if you target purchasing in those markets, you have a greater chance of seeing the property as long as you make the right purchase, a smart purchase, you have a greater chance of seeing that property appreciate over time. Now, there are a lot of other considerations, but that is kind of the big picture idea. Um, now, let's look at two different scenarios to see how this plays out. All right, I want to make this very practical. Let's say that you buy a property that has an after repair value of $200,000 and all in, you put into it, again, using a 70% rule, you put in $140,000 into that property, okay? So you start with 30% equity. That's the difference between two dollars and $140,000. you have got 30% equity right at the very beginning. And, or to look at it from a cash standpoint, you have $60,000 worth of, of equity. What then happens over the next few years makes a really big difference. How much does that market appreciate over the next few years? So a let's just say that it's kind of in an average market in this area and it's appreciating for uh, 5% per year. So after the first year when it was worth 200000 it appreciates about 5%. Now it's worth 210000 Remember, you put 140 into it. So now you have 33.33% equity. Uh, in year two, it appreciates by another 5%. So now it's 220,500. In year three, 231, 525. And then in year four, it goes up to $243,100, basically, roughly speaking. So over the course of five years, it goes from being worth 200000 to roughly being worth 243000 Your equity in the property, which again, you have 140 into it, for the purposes of this podcast, we're not going to get into repairs and, and all of that stuff. Let's just say that you have 140 into it and that it stays that number. Uh, your, that number stays the same. Your equity went from 30% to 42.4%. That's great. That's just the market doing what the market does. And your equity uh, at the end of, of that, it went from $60,000 to $103,000. So again, that's great. You just got $40,000 of equity just because the market appreciated over time. But let's use another scenario. 
So, so that was a scenario using the 70% rule with a property that appreciates at 5% per year. But what if you are able to buy a property with less equity, but that appreciates more? And we talk, and again, we talked about this in another uh, another podcast where there are some markets that the past three years, and even going back further than that, have been appreciating between 15 and 20% per year, which is nuts, um, at least from a standpoint of tracking the median price point. Those markets do exist. Um, so let's say, for instance, that you buy another a, a different property, and the after repair value of that property is 200000 and after your purchase and rehab and all of that, you are 180000 in the hole on that property. So you now have 10% equity, right? You put 180 into it uh, between the purchase and the rehab, and it's worth $200,000. So before you had 30% equity starting off using the 70% rule, in this example, you only start off with 10% equity. It's, you would think, okay, the, the one with the 30% equity is going to be better long term. But remember, that one only appreciated by 5% per year, which is pretty average for this market. Let's assume, for the sake of argument, that this property that you purchased with 10% equity appreciates 12% per year. All right, so after year one, when it was worth $200,000, now it's worth $224,000. Year two, 250880 Okay, so in just two years, we've gone up $50,000 in equity, and your equity has gone from 10% to 28.25%. You're almost at the 30% mark. What does that look like in years four and five? In year four, it goes to two, basically 281, and your equity goes up to 35.94%. And then in year five, it, the value goes up to 300, basically 315,000, with your equity at 42.8%, almost the exact same percent of equity that we had in the other property that we started off buying with the 70% rule, but that was only appreciating at 5% per year. Now, I know that's a whole lot of numbers, but to summarize, the first property we started. Uh, with 140000 was what we purchased it for, and, and with all the other costs. And it was worth two hundred. dollars and after, uh, after five years, it was worth 243000 and our equity was 42.4%. The second property example was a property that also was worth 200000 after all of our costs, with our costs having been 180000 And then after five years, it appreciated by 12%, each year to 314,700 and our equity was was basically the same thing 42.8%. What does all of that mean? Okay, practically speaking, what why did I just go through that whole exercise? What am I getting at? Well, here's really what I'm getting at. Would you want property A or property B? Well, it does depend upon your strategy, but if you're a long-term investor, if you're looking to buy and hold long-term, I would argue that property B is better in multiple ways. Practically speaking, the first way that it's better is simply from the standpoint that there are going to be more of those options out there. I already said that uh, it is very hard to buy a property 
using the 70% rule. Very, very difficult. But to buy a property with 10% equity, that's a lot more likely to happen. And there are properties that are on market that come on the market that uh, would allow you from time to time to be able to purchase with a more realistic number like that. So you're going to have more properties at your disposal. If you're trying to acquire rental properties, you're going to have more properties at your disposal if you are willing to have less equity up front. The key is, of course, you have to be very selective from the standpoint of the location of those properties. You have to understand the market or obviously have a realtor that understands the market that helps you to, to target the areas that are most likely to have those disproportionate rates of appreciation in order for this to work. And so there is some projection that has to happen. For some people, projecting is just a little bit too much risk for them. They'd rather know right at the beginning that, that they have the equity and they're not willing to try to project what their equity, equity will be after a few years or they do that, but they don't want to base any numbers off of that. That's fine, but those people are going to have a tougher time finding properties that, that fit their criteria. They, they might find that they are being so picky with their purchases that they can never close the deal. And I have had uh, some investors over the years that it's been very difficult to find properties for them because they're not willing to project. They... Um, they are only willing to look at the, the snapshot right then and there. What does this property, what kind of equity do I have right now? I don't want to project what it'll be in the future. And the result is that, um, that, that those buyers, those investors really have a hard time building out their portfolio. All right, that's a little bit of an aside. What's another advantage to property B? Well, the other advantage is that it is much better if you're going from 30% equity to 42% equity, which was property A. Remember that you started with 30% equity and at the end, after five years of appreciation at 5%, your equity was 42.4%. Well, property B went from 10% equity to 42.8% equity. So the amount of equity in the property, the percentage of equity in the property went up, uh, was really multiplied fourfold. Here's why that is a really, a much more powerful uh, way of, of thinking about equity and thinking about appreciation. Because now, basically, the amount of equity that you have in the property is going to be a lot more, even though, even though in both examples, they both ended after five years with 42% equity, the one property, property A, was only worth $243,000 and property B was worth almost $315,000. So property A, even though property A bought with the 70% rule, they ended with only $103,000 of equity. I say only, that's great. Um, but, the, but the owner of property B, who only started with 10% equity uh, and $20,000 of equity, ends with $134,700, almost $135,000 of equity, over $30,000 of equity more 
than property A. So buying the property with less equity up front when the property appreciates in value disproportionately each year ends up in the long run better than buying the property up front with 70% equity and then seeing the lower appreciation. Now, of course, if you can somehow do both of those things, that's great. But as we've already discussed, it's very hard to buy using the 70% rule. And if you're really serious about buying and building out your rental portfolio, you really need to uh, consider opening your mind to the possibility of not having as much equity up front and, and basically being willing to delay that equity to a later date as it grows in value. Um, and then once it has grown in value, now you're in a really great position to do a cash out refinance because now you've got all this equity in this property. You know, you've got $134,000 of, of equity uh, in a property. Uh, that property, that example B, if uh, property B rather, if you do a, a normal cash out refinance, um, you should be able to do pretty well. You're going to end up, let's see here, 80% 80 uh, 80 of 315, roughly 315, you subtract out the initial cost of 180,000, you're talking about taking home 70 over $71,000 is what your take home refinance in that example is versus property A, if you refinance after five years, it would be closer to 54,500. So you're doing better in the long run with the instance of less equity up front, but more uh, appreciation over the years. Again, there is the risk there from the standpoint of you have to project what that appreciation is going to be. Now, I have had success using this version of the Burr method. And let me just give you a, an example of how I've had success with this. My first rental property was a quadruplex that I bought for $158,000. This is several years ago. Um, so I bought it for $158,000 in an area that was considered at that time to kind of be a low upside area. Well, it turns out that that area, that the conventional wisdom that people had ended up not being true. And my quadruplex now is worth nearly $300,000. So do the math. 80% of $300,000 is $240,000. I bought it for one fifty-eight. I have had some repair costs. Again, we're kind of ignoring uh, the, the maintenance costs. I did not have to do any immediate rehab on those properties. Um, but the long story short is now I've, I've, I'm able to take cash equity out of that property. And now I can take that money. I'm going to pay off the old note that I currently have, which right now is about $90,000. That's going to leave me with up to, and again, it depends on the appraisal, but up to maybe $150,000. I can now take that money and do the last R of the Burr strategy, which is to repeat. Now I can take that money and purchase other properties. Take the, the money that I have, either purchase those properties and try to refinance, or maybe 
use that money towards 20% down payments or 25% down payments, if necessary, of course. I, I'm, I'm of the belief that the lower the down payment, the better, because then your cash on cash numbers are better. But regardless, different strategies on that. Um, I could take that money and then use that as a down payment uh, in order to purchase other properties with financing. So there is a lot of flexibility that that, that that gives you. And to me, I feel like that is, again, if your DTI, your debt to income allows you to buy, to continue to buy and finance other properties, that is a much better strategy than the strategy of doing 1031 exchanges. Uh, what a 1031 exchange is, um, you purchase a property, you, you know, hold on to it for a time, however long, um, has to be at least a year, typically, um, is the conventional wisdom on that. And uh, obviously talk to an accountant to better understand, uh, to better understand how 1031 exchanges work. I am not a financial counselor by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but you take that property, you sell it, and then within a short period of time after having sold it, then you can purchase your next property uh, with the proceeds from that sale, and then you won't have to pay, uh, or you, you'll be deferring the payment on your capital gains. And again, I'm not going to get into the weeds on all of that. That's something that a good accountant uh, can help you with, or someone that, that uh, handles 1031 exchanges. There are intermediaries that specialize in 1031 exchanges, um, and I highly recommend getting one of them involved if you intend to do something like that. Um, but why not, instead of doing that and then you're selling the property, why not take the equity out of the property, do a cash out refinance, and then you get to keep the property and still purchase another. Obviously, there are a lot of different considerations and everyone's situation is different. There might be different reasons for why you want to sell the property and do a 1031 exchange. I'm not going to get into all of that, but this is another way of doing it. And this is the way that you can do it without having to confine yourself to the 70% rule, which in a lot of ways, uh, as until this market flips to more of a buyer's market, the 70% rule is simply not realistic for a lot of people. So my encouragement for you, there are opportunities out there. You have to be willing to project and, and be willing to take a little bit of a risk in order to take advantage of those opportunities. If you are risk adver adverse, then you're going to need to wait uh, really to invest in this market until it flips over to more of a buyer's market. In a seller's market, there is more risk, but there's a lot of reward as well. And this is an opportunity, this is a way that you can approach it um, and use a tried and true method, the Burr method, but, but kind of turn it on its head a little bit rather than, maybe you do still do the refinance right at the beginning that, you know, if you buy cash, uh, you're going to need to do a refinance at some point right after that. But then it gives you the opportunity to do another cash out refinance down the road and to have even more equity. And I hope that all makes sense. I know we discussed a lot of numbers. That was a little bit in the weeds, um, a little bit uh, more data than we typically uh, discuss in terms of crunching the numbers. If you're confused about any of that or have any questions, please let me know. 
I'm always available. I love discussing these things. A lot of you guys do call me or text me or email me to be like, what do you think about these numbers? What do you think about this? What are your thoughts on this strategy? And I always enjoy doing that. Um, even, you know, for people that aren't necessarily um, having immediate closings, I just enjoy this discussion. I just enjoy real estate. I enjoy the investing side, the number side of it. Um, I have uh, an analytical side of my personality that, uh, that this tickles, I guess, a little bit. And so, uh, so I enjoy that. And I hope some of you do as well. If you're looking at real estate investing, if you're thinking about buying rental properties, there is a still a great market for purchasing those. You have to be patient. You have to be selective. But there are opportunities out there. And if you need a realtor to help you with that, I'm your guy. Give me a shout. All my contact information is in the show notes. We can try to, to discuss your situation and what opportunities are out there. And I would love to do that. So just let me know if you need help with any of that. And until next time, I hope you guys stay safe and happy house hunting. <music>